he who fights monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. I am on the unfettered pursuit of truth. I'm Kayla Perry, and this is Honestly Unorthodox. All right, everybody, welcome back to Honestly Unorthodox. I have had quite a week, as I'm sure many of us have had quite a week. There have been some things that have been ripped open. Some might say that they should have stayed closed. Others could easily argue that maybe they needed to be ripped open so that we could just start to filter out some of this uh, <laughs> this logical, ideological pus that might have been sitting around in a while. I apologize for a gross comparison, but there is a point that I'm getting at with all of this. Firstly... I would like to revisit a little bit of uh, some of the main concerns that were brought up in terms of the podcast episode with, with my guests, Will and Adam and Kate. Prior to our recording, so before we even pressed the record button, uh, we had spoken the night before and even the morning of about the issues related to um, Norway and Denmark and how they're, I guess, not only tending to their disabled population there, but primarily their very almost flagrant attempt to abort any fetus that had Down syndrome. This being said, we thought it was a really interesting topic to bring up to Will, who happens to be a history teacher. And he his perspective was that of a historical perspective because that's his area of expertise. So when I have guests on, I like to frame questions in a way that caters to their expertise and their wheelhouse. And I guess even language that they would use. This being said, I think I may have gone into the episode assuming that people would understand what we were referring to. I also wanted to assume that if there were concerns about how things were phrased or worded or even addressed between the four of us, that the best intent would have been assumed. It wasn't, so I I should bring up the fact that not any single one of us would ever in any galaxy support eugenics. I mean, we, we actually said that in the episode, you could hear it. You could read it in the transcript that we all agreed that it was a horrifying concept. That being said, knowing this going into the recording, we thought we were coming from a place of curiosity and intellectual humility and feeling like we were talking about a topic that was important. This is a societal issue. Abortion is a massive societal issue. The care of people with mental illness and disabilities is a is a long-standing societal issue. All of these things are, are very long-standing debates, um, none of which are new, and they can feel very new, and they can feel very fresh, depending on how things are brought up. So we felt like we had a point with the conversation that was brought up. I still contest that we had a point. The point being there are issues that no matter how triggering or harmful or emotionally upsetting or what have you they are, they're important to address because historically ignoring important issues has never led to any solution to any positive outcome. And I worry that as clinicians, 
who are responsible for teaching emotional regulation and communication skills and tolerance and all of the basic building blocks of what it means to build meaningful relationships with people. I worry that if we're very quick to try to censor things because we don't like them or we demand that they be worded in a way that's a little bit more palatable, then we're focusing more on the language change and we're moving further and further and further away from the actual solution. And when we put so much energy into something like a language change, which in some arenas could be very helpful because culture evolves as does language. Um, it, it really can detract from the, the heart of the issue. And I think that's what we see a lot of in society as it stands right now. So this being said, I have some questions that came in that were really, really good questions in relation to not only the podcast, but just in general. Here are a few that I wanted to go ahead and talk about. First question, how can we improve the lives of disabled people? Ooh, this is a really tough question because there's not there's not a lot out there right now that exists to to I guess encapsulate all of the challenges and struggles that people with disabilities and mental illness have to contend with in their day to day. There are ABA clinics abound for preschool age autistic children, which don't get me wrong, it is vital that those services be there. And I'm happy that they're there. Again, going back to my concern about we can be a little narrow minded sometimes in terms of we, we pour so much of our energy and we allocate so much time and so many resources to this population that we we seem to forget that they grow into adults. And when they grow into adults, that's when the challenges really start to show themselves. And that's when challenges become very hard to address because these people aren't given the same resources, the same attention, or even the same love as the four-year-old that has autism or a related disability. So this, all of this to say, I don't know. I, I don't know how we can improve the lives of dis disabled people. I It's a horrible issue that continues to remain horrible because one, I think all of us who are in the field or some, even somewhat familiar with it can attest to the fact that it is insanely difficult. It is emotionally draining. There's a million other factors that tend to take us away from the compassionate clinical side that a lot of us go into the field for that it could almost feel like we are just spinning our wheels and wondering what exactly it is we're doing and how exactly we are of service. And there's a couple reasons for that that are also their own double-edged swords. One, insurance funding is wonderful in the sense that it allows us to get all of these services and uh, procedures and protocols, any medication, anything that we would need to increase our quality of life. I can't imagine many people that are able to pay out of pocket for these sorts of things, specifically something like behavioral therapy, which tends to have very, very, very extensive hours. So in that regard, 
insurance is imperative if this is to be something that's accessible to everybody, which I think it should be. I think everybody should have access to basic healthcare. On that same token, insurance funding and primarily things like big pharma and even therapeutic sectors, they profit off of a lack of progress. So when medical companies and pharmaceutical agencies and all of these massive corporations are there, there, I'm going to word this in a way that was, that's worded far more eloquently than I think that I can say it. This is an article by an author named Gerwinder Begal, who just writes beautifully. Um, his substack is called the prism. If you ever want to look into the work that he's doing, but the way he describes this, is called the Shirky Principle, which states institutions will try to preserve the problems to which they are the solution. It makes perfect sense. It, ne- it isn't necessarily groundbreaking, but it makes absolute sense. ABA companies that make millions upon millions upon millions of dollars are able to do so by making sure that their clients progress but they don't progress too much to where they graduate out of therapy. The same can be said for psychotherapy, social work, or related fields that also use insurance billing as their source of revenue. The only means by which revenue will be almost like this bottomless pit. <laughs> if we think, I think about bottomless menus in restaurants. For revenue to remain bottomless, you have to make sure that the people you are serving remain sick because if they get better, there will be a loss of revenue. And it's disgusting to think about it that way. As someone that owned a a company that served parents for a very, very, very short period of time, I can tell you it is absolutely sickening the hoops that that need to be jumped through to prove to someone else that people could use our help. I find that just incredibly depressing and sad. Further in this article, Gerwinder goes on to say, the motive is often financial. The number of, this is an example he's using. The motive is often financial. The number of pregnancies deemed to require cesarean sections has gradually increased because this method of delivering babies is more profitable than vaginal birth. Likewise, if you're simply sad, then medical, then medical companies can't monetize you. But if your distress can be reclassified as a clinical disorder, then companies can sell you puberty blockers or surgical procedures in reference to gender dysphoria and trans-affirming care. And they could do the same thing if you are suddenly recategorize as having major depressive disorder, anxiety disorder, and eating disorder. Um, Even things like autism and bipolar are starting to skyrocket in terms of the diagnoses. And again, I could see the argument where we say, well, now there's just less of a stigma attached to it. And there's uh, more awareness around these things. That's great. There, there always needs to be awareness around issues that are going on in the world. And with awareness comes conversations. And I would just hope that before we jump to what I guess clinicians would call the most restrictive measure, before we jump to the most dramatic 
solution or the most invasive or the most restrictive, I think a conversation is always, always, always worth it, regardless of the feelings that may come up around it. And so there were a few concerns that I received about the way we, we phrased, um, the question, how the conversation itself was brought up entirely. I would wonder if it was brought up in a way such as how can we bring more awareness to the mass abortion of fetuses with down syndrome? Um, I don't know if that would make people feel better. I don't know if that would take away from the message that we were actually trying to get at, which I'll get to in a second. But my concern again is if we focus so much on the language, we're really not getting to the issue. The issue being services right now for adults with disabilities and adults with mental illness is absolutely awful in this country. I am in Illinois. We are ranked 47 out of 50 in terms of the services that we offer for adults with disabilities and mental illness. I'm not sure if uh, my listeners have been inside of group homes, day programs, state-funded facilities. They are some of the most horrid places you could ever see. And I say that while also trying to hold empathy for people that are doing everything in their power to run these places, I would have no idea how to run a facility like this. I would have no idea how to start a facility like this. I can go from my own experience that is very much related to um, being in treatment for anorexia, being in residential treatment, and people burn out easily. Uh, because of the emotional burden that comes with caring for people with very complex needs. And there's nothing wrong with saying that you're desensitized or that you're emotionally burnt out or you're emotionally checked out or you're mentally just not passionate about it anymore. That has nothing to do with what you're able to do necessarily as a clinician or your character. I think when we could become more honest with ourselves about the current state of services, specifically for people with disabilities and mental illness, because that's the only way that we could actually come up with a solution. But when we cower in fear because we hear something that is very startling, to which by the way, I empathize with. I empathize with things that are startling or I, I cringe when I hear the, the way certain things are said. So I'm fully on board with the, with the cringy feelings that come up. But if we allow that cringe to take the driver's seat and allow us and motivate us to avoid these conversations, I think that is a disservice. I think that is lacking compassion. And I think that is a very, very dangerous slippery slope to go down if we hope to help these people. So going back to the initial question of how do we help people with disabilities, my first answer is I, I don't know. I don't know um, how we would address the problem of insurance profiting off of sickness. I don't know how we would address the problem of without insurance, um, how would these services be funded? 
there are nonprofits out there. There are wonderful people that are making donations to these sorts of um, nonprofits that are in service of people with disabilities and mental illness. But it still comes down to the problem of how how can we understand these person th- these people's needs, hire people, and and keep our staff happy and rejuvenated and refreshed enough to be able to offer continuous compassion. Um, while paying them a suitable salary for the work that they're doing and trying to meet the complex needs of, of patients. That, that is a web that is so incredibly layered and complicated. I will say for the 50th time, I have no idea where to start. My only starting point that I have for most issues is to talk about it and to increase conversations around it not censor conversations around it. Because yes, you may hear things that you find repugnant. You may hear solutions that you find disgusting. You may be exposed to conversations where you say to yourself, what is the point of this? And if that happens, I want us to think about a couple things. I want us to think about the perspective of others. So things that we find useless things that we find triggering, things that we feel are pointless, could be of value to other people. It could get other people thinking about possible solutions. It could incite other conversations where other people could come up with ideas and fill in the gaps that we have. None of that would be possible if censorship was the go-to solution for things that are difficult. I think our clients and our patients deserve far, far better than us unwilling to talk about what is a very grave reality for them. Second question, still related, how can we improve state-funded facilities? Oh my gosh, state-funded facilities. Okay, I'm not going to get into the specifics of state-funded facilities because I could only speak to the ones that are um, in Illinois there are patients who sit in their own feces and urine for days at a time because nobody checks on them. There's a concept I believe that's happening in Florida. I'm not sure if it's happening in other States called warehousing where instead of employing people to teach skills or um, spend quality time with patients or so much as just talk to them and, and, you know, show them that you're there They essentially aim to give them food and water, a place to go to the bathroom, and a place to stay safe. Now, the point can be made that depending on the client and if if they are more severely impacted by um, a psychiatric condition or a disability, maybe depending on their current circumstances, something like safety is the best first place to start. So to have a roof over your head, to have people that could keep you safe from hurting yourself and others, to give you food and water, as basic and almost remedial as it sounds, that could be very appropriate depending on the circumstance. For individuals that could really benefit from 
building more meaningful relationships, from learning new skills to being shown uh, or, or given opportunities to work in jobs or sheltered workshops or, or anything that could bring a little bit more meaning to their life. It is awful for them to sit in facilities knowing what they're capable of doing, but not being given the chance to do it. And instead you see them almost become a kind of zombie-like because they're just ignored by staff and they're ignored by people. And there, there's always the, I don't know if excuse is the right word, but for lack of a better one, there's always the excuse that there's just not enough funding. And th this brings me back to my frustration about private insurance, preschool age, autistic children are the ones that get all of the funding. They have more than enough funding. They have more than enough attention. They have more than enough staff. And I get a little bit angry when we focus so heavily on that and it comes at the cost of people sitting in their own pee and poop as if they're animals living in a state-funded facility. And I hope with this being said, I, I do hope I'm making it quite clear that these are reasons why I came into the field in the first place. And I hope that I'm making it quite clear um, that I would find something again, like eugenics or um, the hurting or killing of disabled people to be absolutely repugnant. And w when I stated in the podcast episode, sending them away somewhere, and um, killing disabled people, they are already being killed. They are, they're already being euthanized. This is not a new concept. And in terms of sending them away somewhere, the patients that I work with have been sent away by their family because their family can no longer care for them or they're unwilling to care for them. These are two concepts that are not new, that have been around for decades. And they're important to address. And if that means we have to deal with the cringy wording of how these things are brought up, I think that is a price we should all be willing to pay if we're claiming that we're all in this for the betterment of these people and that we're all in this for to, to advocate for the increased quality of life of these people. I... I know very little about the ins and outs of how funding works for state funded facilities. I know that anything that is government regulated uh, probably isn't something that is beneficial <laughs> to anybody. And I, I wouldn't, I would, again, I wouldn't have any idea where to start in terms of Again, the argument could be made for, should we take down all state-funded facilities? Well, I don't know. This is kind of on par with when the JRC argument was um, very much in the forefront, is if it means that, yes, is, is the quality of service pretty shitty, relatively speaking, a thousand percent, could... Could it be argued that their quality of life is next to zero living in a state-funded facility? It absolutely could based on what I've seen in state-funded facilities. Now, would it be better if they had nowhere to live? Would it be better without a state-funded facility? Where would they go? What if their parents die? A lot of these, these people do get older. They do age. 
And if they've been in ABA companies where they turn 18 and they're still treated like they're five, it's very unlikely that they're developing skills necessary to function independently in society. So when their parents die and they are inevitably sent away to a group home, a day program, a residential hospital, a state-funded facility, they're left with very with with a very splintered toolbox to to be able to derive meaning and um, attain happiness the way that a lot of us do and that and in a way that a lot of us take for granted. So I would hate to see us just attempt to tear down everything that we take issue with without any sort of viable replacement. As of now, I don't know what a viable replacement for a state-funded facility would be. I know in a book I read called The Great Pretender by an author who was just that this poor thing. My God, she was flipped around and cycled as if she was in a washing machine through over 10 psychiatrists, psychologists, neurologists, cancer doctors. And she had, I'm getting the name wrong. She had some form of encephalitis, which um, presented uh, as psychiatric symptoms. So she did quite a few stays in psychiatric facilities and you read about how these people are treated and it is just absolutely disgusting. I mean, to be, to be middle-aged in adulthood and beyond and to be spoken down to as if you're four and you don't know how the world works and you don't know who you are is awful. And these are the, these are the only places a lot of these people have to go to. In Europe, they had quite a few facilities uh, that resembled more, they looked more home-like. So they had living rooms, bedrooms, kitchenettes, things like that. So it's kind of like a hotel, but it had more of a homey feel to it. And it was housed on this massive plot of land. So there were acres upon acres, and there were horses and animals and gardens. And a lot of the patients that were there, I have to double check the, um, the date. This was definitely not within the last 20 years. I, I want to say this was in the eighties, but don't quote me on that. Um, and I believe it was in Sweden that a lot of their psychiatric symptoms significantly decreased to the point that they were able to live out the rest of their years in this sort of facility. But that being said, we come back to the funding problem. We come back to the hiring problem. Um, and if they are going to be in this place that is more home-like, that has access to the same beauties that people that don't have a severe psychiatric condition or disability have, then what, I guess, what service would be offered? And if no service is offered, then there's no revenue. And without revenue, how will these things come continue to be paid for. It's just this nonstop cycle that unfortunately all comes back down to funding. And that's horrible to say. It's horrible to think that this main barrier to being of service to people is because we don't have enough money, even though we all know that there are sectors in this country that have more than enough money. So another, I don't know, 
um, a shameless, I don't know. I don't know how to make state facilities better. Another question is how can we stop the abortions of disabled babies? Oh, these are really great questions. And I don't know the answer to any of them. (laughs) I'm just happy they're being asked. I'm happy they're being asked because this is the beauty of having conversations with people. This is the beauty of being open-minded and assuming good intent when people ask things that might not be the most fluffy or digestible or palatable topic. I don't know how to stop the abortions of disabled babies because a lot of people that are disgusted by uh, the the topic of things like eugenics and what have you are also pro-choice. So I don't know where... I'm having a hard time making sense or, or I guess marrying the two concepts of if we have compassion and a soul, then we believe that everybody can contribute something to society. I believe that. I believe that we, we all have value. We all assign value and worth to ourselves and nobody else has the ability to do that for us. I also struggle with when we say things like that, but then we also support things like pro-choice and, and killing a fetus. Some people don't see it as killing a fetus. Some people see it as just the scraping out of a, of a clump of cells. And quite frankly, that's entirely on you, however you want to see it. I can't tell you what your political beliefs should be. I also, frankly, I don't have the, the will to do that. That's just not something that... Uh, particularly interests me swaying people's political beliefs. What does interest me is hearing the motivation behind people's decisions, the motivation. And I use the word epistemology pretty often, which is just a fancy way of saying how people know what they know or how people come to believe what they believe. That's what I'm interested in. And that's why I pose the questions that I pose. I don't pose questions to be provocative. I don't pose questions because it's edgy and cool. If that were the case, um, I don't think people realize a lot of the negativity that comes with doing that. And if someone wanted to be edgy and cool, there are a lot more socially acceptable ways to do it that have very minimal negative consequences. So uh, the whole purpose of the work that I do is to, to come together and formulate ways that we could talk through any divide, whether that be a political divide, an emotional divide, an ideological divide, Anything that divides human beings, we have a lot more in common than we realize, but we hyper-focus on the divide, and then our solution to it tends to be things that dance around the actual issue, and that's what I'm trying to address here. I got another question that was very much um, in the same realm as what I, what I just said. And the question was, why can two people say the same thing, but one gets attacked and the other gets praised? I think that goes, there's a lot of factors that play into this one. We're human beings and we naturally want to belong to some sort of group naturally every single one of us 100 
even people that are contrarians, even people that some have called me like purposely going against the grain, everybody wants to belong to something. That's why we're now seeing groups called, you know, heterodox group or, you know, the dissidents of so-and-so. We naturally categorize ourselves. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's one of the most wonderful things in the world to feel like you connect on some level with at least one person. Even better if you could do so with multiple people. The reason why two people could say the same thing and one gets attacked and one gets praised has very much to do with how their both audiences perceive that person to be. It has very much to do with how biased we are in or how, how biased we tend to be in our evaluation of other people. If we look at ourselves and feel like we have a sense of where we fall politically, ideologically, and uh, moralistically, in a moral sense, in our values sense, if we find that one person, or we have decided, let's say, that person A is very similar to us in terms of their values, their morals, their their political party, if that matters to you, uh, there's whatever it is, whatever is important to you that you look for in another person. If you feel more aligned with person A and they could make a comment that is cringy or disgusting or triggering, we are more willing to accept it as well-intentioned or a good faith statement because of our affiliation with this person's values, morals, beliefs, what have you. Whereas person B, they could have the same exact intention as person A with the statement that was made. But if we find or we assign ill intent to that person, or maybe they don't share our political views, or maybe they say things that have been driving us up the wall for a year, or we're looking for reasons not to give them the same respect as person A, we're going to attack what they think, regardless of whether it was verbatim the same thing. Because our motivations are different. Our motivations change. And our perception, our expectation of what something will be wildly influences our perception of what that thing will be. I'm going to give you an example. There was a sociological study where there were two groups of women. Group A was the control group. Group B was the experimental group. Both groups were told, you're going to go do a job interview. It'll be about 10 minutes. The interviewer is just going to ask you a series of questions about yourself, your passions, and, and why you feel like you might be a good fit. Group A, they were just sent right away out into interviews. Group B, they were told, you know what? Um, we're trying something that has to do with beauty standards. We're going to put a scar on your face. We're going to you know, make up a scar on your face using basic makeup and you know stuff they would use in movies. Now... The little sneaky part of this, which was so unbelievably clever on part of experimenters, was when they were doing um, the, the scar makeup for group two, they did it without mirrors. So group two 
they couldn't see what was going on. And as it turned out, the experimenters never put anything on the girl's face. They just told them that they were about to have a scar on their face. And right as they were about to leave the door to go to their interviews, the interviewer said, you know what? Let's try this concealer to cover up your scar a little bit. Remember, there's no actual scar on their face. They're just told that there was. They went to go do their interviews, the girls with the pseudo scar that wasn't actually there. After all of the groups came back, experimenters asked both groups, how did you feel like the interaction was? Did you notice anything about the interviewer? How did it go? Every single girl in group two who thought that they had a scar on their face reported that they experienced hostility, that they felt like they were being judged, that the interviewer was staring at them and that generally their interactions were negative. That is one of the most poignant studies I think I've ever read because both groups of girls looked the exact same. (laughs) Nobody had anything on their face except their own natural, beautiful face or whatever makeup they came in, came in with, but going into something ahead of time, believing they're going to look at my scar. They're going to think I'm so ugly. They're going to judge me. It colored and stained their entire experience, which likely would have otherwise been something very neutral or normal. And the interviewer was the same for both groups. I think that's very relevant to a lot of what happens societally and a lot of what happens in psychological fields, specifically in the realm of social media. Number one, social media is not real life. (laughs) So we take things so seriously because social media crafts a very diluted picture of things that we we should be paying attention to that aren't actually very important things in the grand scheme of societal problems. And it colors our perception of these are the people that are doing good towards this issue. These are the people that are doing bad. When we assign ill intent and we, and we pre-digest things as if we're going to be upset by them, we are going to be upset by them. Even if they are the most neutral thing in the world, someone could tell me right now that the sky is blue, but if I am told ahead of time, you know what, Kayla, the person that's about to tell you whatever they want to say hates you. They think that you are repugnant. They think you are a terrible clinician and an awful wife and a horrible friend. It might color my perception of that person if I were told that ahead of time, which is so unfortunate because that tends to cloud our um, objective judgment of things. And it tends to cloud our, um, our initial, our initial evaluation of what we're being presented with because we've already been spoon fed what we should be thinking about it. So as much as I would like to say we could all benefit from staying off of social media, I think there are things about it where we could all do a better job, including me, of weaning ourselves off of it during certain times. There there needs to be a little bit more of a systematic approach to it because you could still wean off of it. You could stay off of it for 23 hours a day. But in that one hour, if we're not actively using critical thinking and Um, a a smarter means of dissecting the information we're presented with, it doesn't matter how long you're on or off. 
if the critical thinking skills aren't there and the willingness to speak to people about things that we take issue with isn't there, it, it's all going to be for naught all the times that we feel like we're refraining from using it. I don't want to get into too much detail about how to really leverage things like social media or leverage the really positive aspects of things like being very much online. I want to save that for um, the unpopular conference in October that I hope uh, I, I see a lot of people at. But I will say that one of the most beautiful things about being human is that we are human. (laughs) One of our greatest strengths and weaknesses actually is that we are human. And if we could recognize our weaknesses as things that we can improve upon, help others improve upon if that's what they want and be willing to move beyond our own need to punish whatever transgression we see, that's how we lessen the gap. That's how we we try to counteract the divisiveness that's going on, not even just in our field, in the world in general. Because I fully understand the, the motivation to punish and bully and attack because I've done it. I'm a human being just like anybody else. We've, we've all done it and we all will continue to, but imagine what conversations could look like and imagine what kind of solutions could be developed if we were more willing to say, you know what? I really fucked up. (laughs) And if other people fuck up, if we could approach that with, I get it. It happens to me too. Let's move beyond it. Or even asking a simple question like, hey, what did you mean by that? All of this time that we put into our hurt feelings and anger that, by the way, does absolutely nothing to address societal issues. Imagine putting that time and energy and motivation and fire into solution-focused ideas into solution-focused conversations. I would love to see what we'd be able to come up with uh, if we could shift our thinking into, into something like that. That being said, thank you all for your support. I cannot thank the people enough that reached out to me personally and directly. Those who have had Zoom meetings with me, I... I can't even begin to describe how much I appreciate your time um, and your willingness. So I hope that I continue to hear from all of you, more of you, whoever um, is interested in having continued conversations. You can email me at theangrybehavioranalyst at gmail.com. You can message me on Instagram. I'm very accessible. I will do my best to answer as quickly as I can. Here's to continued conversations, my friends. (laughs) This 
show was produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts and made possible by listeners like you. If you ever thought of doing your own podcast, please visit prettyeasypodcasts.com. Thank you so much for listening to Honestly Unorthodox. If you've ever thought about starting your own podcast, but just don't know where to start, have no fear. Pretty Easy Podcast is here to get your podcast off the ground and sounding great at an extremely affordable rate. Pretty Easy Podcast helps new and seasoned podcasters by providing production, editing, and podcast management assistance. With Pretty Easy Podcasts, you can focus on your show's content while having a reliable tag team partner handle any and all of the technical aspects of podcasting to help your show sound great. As someone who clearly loves to hear themselves speak, I am completely uninterested in learning all of the mechanics of the technicalities of podcasting, the editing, and even the uploading of certain digital material that's needed to make this podcast sound as great as it does. And Pretty Easy Podcast has taken care of all of that for me, and they continue to indulge my love for getting all of this information out to you without any stress and any concern. You can go to prettyeasypodcast.com and get started today. Working with Alan and Melissa really has helped me avoid these roadblocks that so many podcasters run into with the recording, the editing, the feed management. Whether you're new to it or you already have a show, going to prettyeasypodcast.com really makes podcasting just that, pretty easy.